Welcome to listeners of the JHI blog podcast, In Theory. My name is John Ramo, and I recently had the opportunity to speak with Chazelle Sapiro about her latest book, Les Écrivains and la Politique en France, de l'affaire Dreyfus à la Guerre d'Algérie, published by Edition de Say in 2018. She is a professor of sociology at the École des Autitudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris, France as well as a research director at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. A student of Pierre Bourdieu, Sapiro has extended his sociological frameworks to the French literary field, as well as to international flows and markets of literature and literary translations, herself innovating the fields of intellectual history and the sociology of ideas, even as she continues to set research agendas for global history, the study of politics, and the study of literature in and beyond France. Anglophone scholars may have first encountered Professor Sapiro's work in numerous articles in English, when the translation of her first book, The French Writer's War, 1940-1953, translated by Vanessa Doriot Anderson and Dorit Kahn, with the help of Jasmine Deventer, and published by the Duke University Press in 2014. The work which we discuss today falls in the line of other monographs and edited collections on the development, functioning, and social, political, and legal character of literary fields in general, and within European contexts more particularly. This work includes Professor Sapiro's 2011 book, La Responsabilité de l'écrivain, Literature, Droit et Morale en France, du 14e au 21e siècle, and the 2014 handbook for students, La Sociologie de la Literature both of which I especially urge our listeners to consult in addition to her most recent work on field theory and the concept of autonomy. While we cannot cover the full scope of Professor Sapiro's latest book in the following conversation, I think some further idea of her ambitions and working methods can be found in the following passage, which I have translated and read here from page 216 of the French edition. It seems fruitful, from a heuristic point of view, to differentiate the uses of the term political, ideology, and worldview, or schemes of perception and evaluation. The first, taken in the sense of politics, should be reserved for the stances, or position-taking, that inscribe themselves in the game of the political field, as soon as the same field is granted relative autonomy. The second refers to the field of ideological production, where the struggle for the imposition of the legitimate vision of the social world is played out. This struggle is the work of specialists of ideas, that is, intellectuals, and of such authorities as the press and intellectual journals participating in the development and dissemination of representations of the social world. Literature is implied in this field of ideological production only when the literary field is not autonomous, or when it is used more or less directly for the purposes of propaganda. The third is the broadest. It implies all the schemes of perception and evaluation and the principles of clarification conveyed by literary works, which can be related to the doxa or the episteme of its time. If they contain a political dimension, in the broad sense of politics, or ideological, it is necessary to take into account the greater or lesser transformation that these schemes have undergone while being reworked and shaped by a literary form. Finally, let us remember that the meaning of works is inseparable from the appropriations that are made of them. It is during the process of reception that they are given their full ideological dimensions, regardless of the intentions of the author. 
The question of the relationships between literature and ideology thus presupposes a sociological analysis in three stages, which are only distinguished for the needs of research and must be conceived of as three levels acting simultaneously upon this relationship. In the first place, it is a question of studying the conditions of pro production of the works, and in particular the system of external constraints which weigh upon their production, namely the degree of autonomy of the literary field with respect to the political, religious, economic fields, media, and scholarship. The second level concerns the relationship between the work and the author's worldview and his or her system of values. The third level relates to its reception and the appropriations to which it can be made subject. And with this, I turn it over to Professor Sapiro herself in the course of our recent interview. I'm here uh, and delighted to speak with uh, Professor Chiselle Sapiro on the occasion of the publication of her new book, Les Écrivains et la politique en France de l'affaire Dreyfus à la guerre de d'Algérie, which appears uh, with the, public, uh, the French publisher Say. And we're delighted to have one of the premier professors of sociology and the study of literature in France here to talk about this new book. So Professor uh, Sapiro, if we could begin with speaking about your basic intellectual parkour, what led you both to the study of sociology and more particularly the sociology of literature? I was trained in comparative literature and philosophy at Tel Aviv University. I was initiated to the semiotics of culture and to the sociology of literature by Itamar Evenzoar, who supervised my master thesis. And we were reading Bourdieu, and since I was French, I was involved in translations of Bourdieu's texts. My master thesis was about the role of writers in the reconstruction of France's self-image. Uh, it's a concept by uh, Yuri Lotman. Uh, after the liberation of Paris in 1944, so the, the national representations uh, in the newspapers, uh, there was a whole chapter uh, about the reorganization of the intellectual field at the time. Evenzoar put me in contact uh, with Bourdieu, and uh, Bourdieu accepted to advise my uh, uh, PhD dissertation. Uh, and he encouraged me to write uh, the dissertation on the literary field uh, uh, during and after the German occupation. Initially, I wanted to work on you know, the liberation, and he insisted that I wouldn't understand anything about uh, liberation without working on the occupation. So, in fact, I became a sociologist because of questions I asked myself about literature. And in Tel Aviv, I had taught uh, narratology and also history of political ideas um, as an as, as assistant of uh, uh, Shlomo Sand, who introduced me to the history of intellectuals as well. And when I arrived uh, in Paris, uh, back to Paris, uh, I took seminars uh, in sociology at the École des études en sciences sociales, and I started teaching sociology, and I learned sociology while teaching it. Uh, after I defended my PhD in sociology in 1994, uh, I got a research position at the CNRS, uh, National Center for Scientific Research, in sociology. But I continued, of course, to work uh, with literary scholars and with historians. Uh, I was a member of the board of the Social uh, History Journal Mouvement Social, and I'm still. Uh, and also, I was a member of the board of the Dictionnaire des Intellectuels Français, Dictionary of French Intellectuals. Thank you, and uh, 
we can also, I think, trace your career in many of the major publications that you've um, brought out, including Le Sacre Vain and Le Politique en France, uh, this new book, but also your first book, uh, uh, La Guerre des Écrivains, uh, 1940 to 1953, which has also appeared with Duke University Press as The French Writers' War, 1940 1953, in 2014. And then also uh, one of your last major books, uh, La Responsabilité de l'Écrivain, Littérature, Droit et Morale en France, from the 14th to the 21st uh, century, the siècle. No, the 19th. Ah. 19th century, and not to mention your increasing research in international flows and institutions of literary exchanges and translation. So the new book collects, arranges, revises, and also expands a series of previous articles. Something remarkable for me with this genre of academic publishing is how clear lines of research emerge throughout the book's narrative. Um, did the work of this book help bridge older and new research interests or help answer any lingering questions from previous research and work that you undertook? And were there also any surprises as you were revising and expanding the chapters and organizing them into a new single work? Yeah, thanks. Your description is completely accurate. So the papers collected in this book were written after French Writers' War, uh, after it appeared in French in 1999. Uh, though the idea of gathering and reworking, reworking them as a book uh, came later, some of these papers, especially uh, chapter one on right and left in the literary field and chapter two on the forms of intervention uh, in the literary field, form, forms of political intervention, were constructing a more general model, which I was able to formulate only after my first book was out. And the theoretical reflection about the relationship between, between the literary and political fields also consolidated in my seminar at the École des études en sciences sociales, especially the introduction uh, uh, to the first part and also the, the, to the second. Uh, chapter six was partly developed, it's about uh, uh, the evolution of uh, uh, the especially the, the novel uh, since the 19th century uh, in relationship to the political uh, stances um, was partly developed in the course I gave every year during 12 years uh, as visiting professor at the Frankreichszentrum uh, of Freiburg Universität on literature and society in France. Uh, it was a course I was uh, giving with Josef Jurt. Uh, so I was, uh, it was concentrated on a couple of days. Uh, and it also draws from my second book on literary trials and the role of writers uh, in the struggles for freedom of expression in France from the 19th century to nowadays, so this chapter, the sixth chapter. The introduction to the second part uh, is a more recent reflection linked to the handbook uh, I published in 2014 on the sociology of literature. Uh, in other chapters, I reworked some of the previous materials I gathered during my first research, uh, adding on them, going more in-depth in the analysis of the relationships between literature and politics, and the epi epilogue sketches the transformation that occurred since the post-war period and addresses the question of the depoliticization and repoliticization of contemporary lit French literature. 
and I also questioned the relevance of the analytical model I built uh, uh, for past period, the, its relevance for the present, uh, the forms of engagement of the radical literary right today uh, or the literary left today. So, so indeed, the idea of this book uh, emerged like, uh, I think, uh, uh, eight years Ten years ago, uh, it took some time until I, I finished it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the, the, the contract was signed like ten, ten years ago. Well, what's also remarkable is how timely the book feels, even if this work began earlier. I think it addresses the current day uh, very, very closely, and, and we'll address this topic later in the conversation. But I want to take a, a few steps back uh, and note that the book is dedicated to the memory of your teacher, uh, Pierre Bourdieu. And your own research acknowledges this that even as you continue to build upon and further develop many of the categories and concepts he's, he's, he devised. And here I should remind, uh, well, tell uh, Anglophone listeners that Professor Sapiro has written, as she mentioned, a wonderful handbook or introduction to the study of uh, the sociology of literature under the same title, the Sociologie de la Littérature. And I think this is especially interesting in this book with um, some of the discussions of doxa, symbolic violence that come up in the book very briefly. But uh, I'd like to ask and push on this a little bit. Did this book help you to clarify or modify those debts that you owe to, uh, to your teacher, Pierre Bourdieu? Yeah, I think my theoretical contribution uh, on the relationship uh, between the literary field and the political field is new. Uh, as well as the relationship between autonomization and professionalization. Uh, it's a question that I further developed in the recent article in the journal Symbolic Goods, it's in French and in English at the same time, comparing the concept of autonomy in field theory, the sociology of professions and Marxist theory, and proposing a kind of a synthesis of these approaches. Um, I think I also contributed to clarify since my first book uh, that political commitment is not necessarily incompatible with uh, literary autonomy. And this is a mistaken understanding of the concept of autonomy in Bourdieu. Not by Bourdieu, but by readers of Bourdieu. On the contrary, uh, because Bourdieu agreed to that uh, idea. Uh, on the contrary, I demonstrated uh, in my uh, I demonstrated in my two first books that politicization could occur in the very process of the defense of literary autonomy. Uh, on the other hand, art for art's sake can be used for heteronomous purposes, as it happened with the journal La Nouvelle Revue Française. Uh, during the German occupation, art for art's sake uh, served to normalize the situation of occupation. Uh, and I also insist that we should distinguish discourses and practices uh, while promoting art for art's sake. Uh, La Nouvelle Revue Française was excluding former collaborators of the journal, not for literary reasons, but because of their political commitments or because of their Jewish origins. So they were holding a kind of discourse of autonomy, but their practice were not autonomous. Yeah, um, and this comes through, I think, clearly in almost every chapter of the book as well. Uh, but you also introduce to some of the terms that you just mentioned a few others, including these um, very fascinating categories of analysis, esthete, notables, avant-garde, and polemicists. There's indeed one diagram that we'll reproduce on the website of how you 
literally plot and a literary field. So I'm just curious if you can also, can you talk us through this diagram for our listeners? Yes, um, maybe I should first explain uh, the leading argument uh, in the book. Uh, it would make the diagram per perhaps clearer. Uh, the leading argument is that the literary field different differentiated from the political field in the second half of the 19th century because of the professionalization of the political career, uh, especially with the advent of parliamentary regime. The Dreyfus affair can be regarded as a reaction to the dispossession of intellectuals from politics and the new manner of asserting their symbolic power. And the political and literary fields have indeed a lot in common. There is the bipolarization between conservative and progressive. Even the notion of avant-garde uh, was first political. Uh, there are open struggles between competing groups, uh, and these structural analogies facilitated the import of political no notions such as right and left uh, in the literary field. Uh, at the same time, these notions were refracted. This is field theory. The refraction means that uh, they uh, uh, are refracted according to the, the field's specific logic, uh, meaning that they came to signify oppositions that are specific to the literary field. So right and left uh, came to uh, um, uh, encode uh, the opposition between established writers versus avant-garde or right bank versus left bank uh, and so on. And so these categories of right and left became meaningful uh, also in literary juries that appeared uh, at the time, especially the Goncourt Press jury, because uh, there was a debate about who voted what. So it's a kind of assembly, and then the, an assembly must have a right and a left, right? Um, and so the second uh, specific contribution which derives from this autonomy is that uh, on the right, as on the left, there are specific forms of political intervention of writers which correspond to the position they occupy within the literary field and also uh, to their conception of literature. So uh, if we look at the graph, we can see that um, the more writers are endowed with symbolic capital, that is to say the more dominant they are, if we go up, uh, the more they tend to depoliticize and euphemize their inter interventions. The less they are endowed with symbolic capital, the more they tend to politicize their discourse as a means uh, to oppose the dominant. As their proper names at this pole, dominated pole, does not encapsulate enough symbolic capital, they also tend to intervene in groups. Uh, and they tend to accumulate collective symbolic capital under names such as Dada uh, or to join political organizations because they don't exist as uh, singular figures. They don't st still don't have a name like Sartre, uh, uh, who himself uh, became Sartre only after the Second World War. Uh, however, the model of political intervention also varies according to the degree of autonomy. So if we cross these two factors, the overall volume of symbolic capital, dominant versus dominated, and the degree of autonomy, uh, it allows uh, us to distinguish four postures which entail four ideal types of intervention. 
So as you mentioned, uh, uh, I distinguish the notabilities, the estates, uh, the avant-garde and the polemists, polemicists. So the notabilities are close to the dominant classes. They conceive of literature as a means of social reproduction. And morals is their depoliticized mode of intervention in the form of essays or columns in the newspapers. And a portrait of political leaders is typical or, uh, typically a genre they are fond of, uh, as it enables them to stage their proximity uh, to the ruling authorities. So I do, for instance, in the book, an analysis of Malraux's uh, portrait of De Gaulle, uh, Les Chênes qu'on abat, Fallen Oaks. Uh, estates uh, differentiate themselves from the notabilities by refusing to submit art and literature to criteria other than aesthetic. It is through aesthetic values that they assert their autonomy from the dominant class and from politics and also through an aesthetic uh, lifestyle. The literary or intellectual uh, journal is their privileged publication venue uh, as it provides more autonomous space for intellectual uh, reflection. Now the avant-garde tend to politicize their artistic subversions uh, as they oppose the dominant orthodoxy in the field. Um, they use theoretical discourse to express their conception of art and literature and give it the form of manifestos, like the surrealists and the situationists. Contrary to the notabilities, they conceive of literature as an instrument of subversion of the social order, but not at the price of aesthetic autonomy, which they are not ready to sacrifice. Although they were attracted by the Communist Party in the late 1920s, uh, when, the, when the Communist Party was an avant-garde, political avant-garde, the Surrealists quitted it f a few months after they joined, uh, they had joined because they refused to subordinate uh, aesthetics to politics. And finally, writers who lack any symbolic capital tend to reduce literature to political stakes. And satire and lampoons uh, are the most typical genre, genre here. Uh, when uh, these authors intervene politically, uh, they tend to the extremes on the right and, or on the left, and so polemic, uh, 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 being polemist is the, their mode of uh, existence in the literary field. And so I dedicated the whole chapter in the book, chapter three, to show how these Ideal types enable us to analyze the modes of intervention of far-right and fascist writers in the 30s and 40s. Wonderful. And um, I should also just remind the listeners that uh, Professor Sapiro has also written several articles on the notion of the field, also for Anglophones, on the website Politica, which is very helpful as well for preparatory reading uh, for this book. Um, and I'm curious a little, uh, I'd like to ask, with these different... Um, tendencies uh, that you uh, that appear in the diagram, is there any traffic of individuals between uh, so, so between the notables, between the estates, between the avant-garde and the polemicists, or even between right and left? So here I can name certain writers uh, who moved progressively to the, to the right in the course of her career. I'm rather harder pressed to name conservative intellectuals who moved to the less or to the left, or even more rarely moved inwards and stuck in the center. 
So I'm wondering if you could talk about how individuals moved within the system, if they did. So statistically, it is more common to see people evolve from the left to the right, in general. Uh, we have statistics from political uh, uh, scientists, uh, so from progressive to conservative position, because when you are young, you are more likely to want the world to change, while when you are aging, you tend to defend your position in society, what you acquired. Uh, however, uh, in my previous book, uh, French Writers Were, I analyzed the case of François Mauriac, a Catholic writer, uh, who became critical of the Vatican, so he was a Catholic, during the Spanish War, and who had also opposed the invasion of Italy uh, by Mussolini, that was supported by the Church. And he was the only member of the Académie Française uh, who joined the literary underground during the German occupation because the literary underground was more a gathering of younger uh, writers uh, who were more ready to take risk. Uh, and also Mauriac would take critical positions towards colonialism after he won the Nobel Prize in 1953. So I tried to show that his political commitment was linked to his positioning within the literary field. Uh, he tried to be to navigate between the two poles, the, the more uh, heteronymous poles, which led him to the Académie Française. But at the same time, he was looking for the reward from uh, the Nouvelle Revue Française, which uh, he, he translated that in religious terms, in his worldview, uh, he was reading the literary field through religious uh, uh, categories. So uh, um, the Académie Française were, was more the uh, kind of Pharisaism, and uh, the uh, Nouvelle Revue Française was the purity, the pure message. And so he was attracted by that. And also his work was almost all, all the time at the limit of heresy for the church, almost banned, because he was always playing with uh, this uh, criticizing Pharisaism, uh, uh, bourgeois Pharisaism. Uh, um, and so so from the moment he, he got all he could have cut from the pole of uh, the, the uh, of uh, the more heteronymous pole, meaning the Académie Française, then he started to oppose uh, the very people who elected him there, who co-opted him there, uh, this uh, uh, right-wing uh, uh, um, academic, uh, academic writing, uh, right-wing uh, uh, writers, uh, and and he, he fought them all of uh, all during uh, the, the, the further decades uh, until his uh, death. And so and maybe to, to go back to, to the question, so I would say that um, the tendency is from uh, uh, progressive to conservative, but you can have different uh, uh, directions. These different directions are linked to field effects. That's what I would say, especially for intellectuals. So you can come from a kind of very conservative origins and have conservative view, but when you enter the field, you have to review your uh, uh, worldview. Uh, you have to adapt it. So either to make it more radical, probably, um, and then uh, it's also linked to the way you uh, uh, gain your place in the literary field and the way you read the field. Uh, if you identify the autonomous pole as more uh, symbolically uh, rewarding, uh, you would 
tend to adhere to the values of this autonomous poor. Now, what I would like to add is that uh, the move from left to right is not necessarily the same move as the one that we could see in the graph from avant-garde to uh, estate, for instance, or uh, because, as I said, you can have all these positions, both on the right and on the left. I didn't find a, a far-right avant-garde in the 30s, uh, Céline could have been that, but when Céline is an uh, 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 innovative writer, he's not yet uh, a far-right author, and when he uh, becomes a far-right author with the Lampoons, he's using a genre who is the genre of the polemist, though he renews the genre, uh, but uh, it's not. And it's interesting because, for instance, Gide's reading of uh, uh, the Bagatelle pour un massacre and the anti-Semitic uh, 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 Lampoons by Céline, uh, tries to keep him on the autonomous pole. He says that Jews are a metaphor. He says Jews are a metaphor here. So he tries to have a, a, an aesthetic reading of the pamphlets, while uh, Maritain, uh, who is a Catholic thinker, he reads exactly the <laughs> what, what uh, Céline uh, uh, is doing, meaning re relying also, uh, this is uh, what has been uh, uh, shown uh, uh, by by scholars uh, relying on uh, on uh, the far right uh, newspapers, uh, bringing all the data from there there, and so so it's it, it is literal. It's not metaphorical. Yeah. So another concept that you uh, bring up in the book and absolutely fascinated me was the notion of a prophet or concept of a prophet. And I'd like to hear a little more about how you deployed that figure as an analytical notion and how you developed your own definition of her or him. Uh, other scholars come to mind who have made use of this notion, including Buber and Weber, uh, and also Paul Benichot. And uh, I think you've also used this term earlier in your career, so I'd like to have you just explain how you use the term and maybe how your use of the term has changed over time. Yes, I used the figure of the prophet already in my work on Moriac for my first book. Um, I spent a lot of time reading Max Weber in the 1990s, not only the chapter on religion in economy and society, but also the ancient uh, Judaism, where you find long analysis of this figure. Uh, you have not, don't have only the big prophets, but you have also those small false prophets. Uh, I also rely on Bourdieu's interpretation of Max Weber, where he says that the structural opposition between the prophet and the priest is the most significant. While the priest draws his or her authority from an institution, the prophet isn't mandated by an institution. And he or she bears the entire responsibility of his or her prophecy. And I started analyzing the committed writer as a modern prophet in an article I published in Theory and Society uh, in 2003, indeed. Uh, now, in Benishu, there is the idea of the transfer from the sacred, the uh, transfer of the sacred uh, from uh, religion to literature, so sacralization of literature in the Romantic period. And Victor Hugo is, of course, a prophetic figure. So this is uh, very interesting and perfectly right. But Benichou does not rely on Weber and does not provide any structural analysis, such as the opposition between prophet and priest, uh, to understand their position in society. Um, so for me, uh, the, the reflection on prophetism was uh, 
broader way to think about the mode of intervention of writers uh, in society uh, and to see writers as these modern prophets. Prophetism became a political mode of intervention of writers in the conjuncture of the rise of expertise, uh, what sociologist Andrew Abbott called the division of expert labor, which dispossessed them of their social authority. Because beforehand they were describing uh, the morals in society, they were writing the uh, national history, national past, uh, and uh, suddenly they, there are historians, psychologists, sociologists who are, uh, um, have the jurisdiction from the state to, to be the specialist of that. So, so the writers are dispossessed and the more they are dispossessed by the experts, the more, the more they go into pro prophetism. Uh, and also, uh, the other reason is that while the political field was professionalizing and excluding the writers also, uh, political parties in uh, a democratic regime, in the parliamentary regime, also needed charismatic legitimation. So Maurice Barres was a deputy at parliament, but the new generation of ultra-nationalist writers gathered uh, in a league, Action Française, who operated outside of the political field under the leadership of two influential writers, Charles Maurras and Léon Daudet. Uh, but you have also these writers who were uh, members of uh, political parties, and especially in the Communist Party. Uh, Communist Party <coughs> recruited uh, 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 writers to do this um, charismatic uh, uh, work. <coughs> Political leaders uh, also needed uh, their charismatic alter ego. Uh, there are famous couples of uh, political leaders and writers like uh, Marshal Pétain and Charles Maurras, or De Gaulle and Charles De Gaulle and André Malraux, or uh, Maurice Torres and uh, Aragon. And prophets emerge, uh, especially in times of crisis. Uh, François Mauriac is an example. His two most beautiful pieces in my sense, uh, the Black Notebook uh, that he published underground during the occupation and uh, L'Imitation des Bourreaux de Jésus-Christ, the imitation of Jesus Christ persecutors, his text against torture in Algeria, use uh, real biblical uh, rhetorics. Um, and of course the avant-garde is full of prophets such as André Breton, Guy Debord, who gather a community of believers uh, uh, over which they, uh, they exert their personal charisma. But I argue in the book that some writers, <coughs> some writers were granted expertise in the cultural domain by the political power starting the interwar period when culture became a category of public intervention. So writers were asked to uh, provide expertise on cultural affairs uh, for uh, public policies. And this is how I analyze André Malraux's trajectory in the last chapter from the avant-garde to the Ministry of Culture, which was created for him in 1959. Uh, and this role of uh, experts, writers, experts of culture will disappear in the 70s with the rise of cultural bureaucrats, and the, the management of culture. Thank you. And that was one of the surprises of the book for me to find that the position was actually created, created for Mauro. 
So to move forward a little bit, you've also touched, you touched in the book upon the question of how authors themselves conceived of their readership. Um, there's Aragon, de Beauvoir, and this also extends slightly beyond the scope proper of how writers thought of their own roles and positions that they occupied in the literary politi political fields. So I'd like to ask, did the idea, the ideal, or the promise of a mass readership affect the sociological and intellectual dynamics at play here? Yeah, so the widening of the readership uh, had been an argument invoked uh, all along the 19th century to enhance the writer's objective responsibility. So in literary trials that I studied uh, in my former book on the responsibility of the writer, writers often defended themselves, arguing that their work only reached a small elite. So it was an argument in their defense, uh, saying that the book was too expensive, uh, it couldn't reach, it was too difficult, it was too long. Uh, so all these were indicators that they were not trying to influence the masses. However, following liberal writers and the humanitarian romantics such as uh, uh, Victor Hugo and Georges Sand, Zola and the naturalists did want to enlighten the readership. Sartre's conception of the writer's responsibility and his theory of literary engagement is related to this wide readership. He says that this wide readership creates a responsibility for the writer. Um, and it also defines defines the writer's role in a democratic regime. Nevertheless, at the beginning of the Cold War, within the Communist Party, the workerist current, ouvrierist, uh, gained authority, and writers like, especially Aragon, uh, who had a symbolic capital because of the resistance, uh, found himself confronted with the judgment of these ordinary readers, and there is a, a scene that I describe uh, in the book, um, and criticized from their standpoint. Um, and so Aragon was offended, and he started to defend the idea of the critics and writers' specific authority uh, on literary matters. That is to say, to defend literary autonomy within the Communist Party, and this would, le would lead to uh, further writings. And I have also analyzed uh, his intervention as, uh, at the um, uh, Comité Central of the, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, where he was a member uh, in the 50s, and. Uh, most of his interventions are related to defense of literary autonomy in one way or another. So it's, it's, it's quite fascinating to see how it functions within the Communist Party. Uh, and indeed, the Communist Party will abandon socialist realism uh, in the 60s, um, beginning in the 66, more precisely. But it was a long process and a fight from inside, uh, in part. And Beauvoir, in the passage I quote uh, from Les Mondarins, uh, tries to show that autonomous writing can have political um, impact on the reader. So it's a bit, a little different question, uh, but it is related because it was uh, the kind of autonomous stance of political commitment that uh, Sartre and the existentialists were trying to make against uh, socialist realism. So you don't have to be a member of the Communist Party and to subscribe to uh, uh, socialist realism in order to be politically influential. And you can be politically influential uh, with uh, literature that uh, respects uh, uh, the uh, formal criteria 
uh, of um, the formal uh, requirements of, of literature and uh, the uh, also especially the requirements of modern literature and also uh, who is close to art for art's sake uh, in its form, yeah. So this is what what she says there. That uh, art for uh, in, when you read it, uh, it's referring to Sartre. Uh, the form is very close to art for art's sake. But when you read it, uh, you get feelings of uh, emotions of disgust, indignation. So it provokes uh, in the reader reactions. Uh, or empathy, she doesn't mention empathy, it's more indignation, but um, you provoke reactions. Uh, that means that uh, the uh, literary work has an impact without having a clear ideological uh, stance. Thank you. And uh, of course, writers aren't the only people, writers aren't the only people involved in this process. Two other agents are publishers, and then also literary critics. So less perhaps in a, a direct question, I'd like to ask you to expand on did the same uh, categories that you employed to describe writers and also the same processes and distinctions also apply to publishers and their role and then also literary critics? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So uh, I haven't worked on the publishers, but the, um, spontaneously thinking of your question, I would say that it should work. I mean, we could find uh, uh, publishers who are more uh, avant-garde, publishers who are more estates, publishers who are more polemicists, and uh, publishers who are more uh, kind of on the moral side, the academic. So it would really uh, work and same for uh, uh, literary journals uh, and criticism I have worked on uh, um, this uh, issue of uh, um, uh, critical judgment um, so I'll first um, explain how uh, it functions so uh, using the same uh, graph um, the autonomous pole would focus more on form, while the heteronymous pole would uh, focus on content. Now, the dominant heteronymous would develop a moral judgment on the content, while the dominant autonomous uh, uh, critics uh, would uh, have a more aesthetic judgment and would focus more on form in their criticism. The dominated heteronymous criticism reduces literature to social and political issues, uh, while the dominated autonomous would underscore the subversive dimension of innovative forms and their political impact. So this works pretty well for criticism. Now, if we think of the history of criticism, um, Today we have the idea that criticism is necessarily on the side of autonomy, but historically it's it's not true, and even today it's not true, uh, and perhaps it's le even less true in the Anglo-American world. But in France there is still de this idea. Uh, so if you, uh, for the book on the literary trials, I, I worked a lot on the the criticism. Uh, um, the prosecutors were often relying on criticism for their attack. So there was a, a critic. 
uh, a kind of uh, conservative uh, criticism in a paper. Uh, sometimes they were commissioned in the, 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 the critique. Uh, and then they used it uh, to uh, prosecute, the, 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 to bring the charges against the, the works. So, um, uh, so there was a conservative uh, 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 critic, uh, uh, group of critics all along the 19th century. Uh, some of them were also censors, um, acted as, as censors, and they had very conservative and classical uh, uh, conception of criticism. Uh, now, the rise of an autonomous critique is linked to the autonomization of the literary field, and Bourdieu described this well. And it's interesting in his book on Manet, he shows that he's also they, they also experiment that with painters because the the the, the art criticism would be one uh, would be carried on by writers who experiment uh, the uh, questions of autonomy on uh, 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 their discourse about art, and uh, artists would rely on that to defend their autonomy. So there is a kind of alliance between uh, the literary and uh, art uh, fields. And these uh, autonomous critique, uh, their room of maneuver was not so wide, but they would act more in journals than in newspapers, of course. Um, and the role of journalists was to defend this uh, critique. What happens um, in at the end of the 19th century is the academic institutionalization of literary criticism and also a kind of division of labor because at the beginning uh, there is a professionalization of, of uh, uh, critics, uh, journalists uh, who, who do criticism, who try to uh, make a living out of their, uh, their critique. But at the same time you have the um, um, academics and they were writing critics for free. So there was a huge debate about the professionalization of critique, uh, uh, criticism at the, around the, 90, uh, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and so the, the, the professional critics in the, uh, the newspapers, they, they were reproaching the academics to, to do uh, uh, an deloyal uh, competi competition um, in the end, there was a kind of division uh, of labor that was established, so the academic would focus more on, uh, on classics, on uh, dead authors, and the professional uh, writer, uh, critics uh, from the newspapers would focus on the contemporary. So uh, it was around, uh, of course, Gustave Lançon, who was the one who institutionalized also literary, his literary history at a, a new university. Um, there's also a, a really fascinating passage. There's also um, a fascinating passage in your book where you mentioned that, um, well, you differentiate between the political ideology, also a vision du monde, a vision of the world. And I'd like to, this seems like an appropriate moment to ask, can you? work with those categories a little further for us and show how they're coming into place at this moment. So I criticized the use of the concept of ideology for studying literature. It was very um, uh, widespread in the 70s, um, especially among Marxist uh, literary critics. 
but this notion, it, it comes from uh, Althusser, but this notion implies a coherent and conscious political system, whereas literature vehicles uh, many schemes that have a political connotation and impact uh, without being framed in a coherent ideology. So, for instance, uh, I, analyze, I study in the book the vision of decadence in Drieux La Rochelle's uh, novel Rêveuse Bourgeoisie, Dreaming Bourgeoisie, uh, which cannot uh, nonetheless be defined as a fascist novel. Uh, contrary to his other novel, Gilles, who, which is uh, um, an ideological novel, a roman à thèse, as uh, analyzed by Susan Suleiman. Um, so, I think the notion of uh, worldview uh, is more relevant to study literature, uh, worldview which would include representation, schemes that underlie our judgment, uh, as well as ethical and aesthetical dispositions that orient our taste, our disgust, our emotions, our uh, uh, emotions of empathy or indig indignation. And I also discussed the issue of literature as knowledge. Um, French philosopher Jacques Bouvray speaks of literature as practical knowledge in his book Connaissance de l'écrivain. Uh, and so I'm interested in this notion of literature because it's not a theoretical knowledge, but it does confer something uh, that you learn from. I have the feeling that I've learned uh, everything I've learned in life as a kid was from literature. Uh, so, so you learn. Uh, there is an interesting discussion also with Pascal Angel to uh, uh, what, what does it mean actually, literature as practical knowledge, because uh, practical knowledge is a know-how and, and it's not transmitted. You don't learn how to, how to do things, right? So, so I'm uh, dealing with this discussion, but I, and finally I suggest to study literature as being placed in a tension between Foucault's notion of episteme and uh, Bourdieu's notion of doxa. Uh, so the question is how much literary works reproduce common or scientific knowledge, like for instance the naturalists did with medicine, and how much they renew our vision of the world by subverting the doxa and sometimes even the episteme. So that's a wonderful reading list for graduate students as well as most Americans. Uh, I know I, I still need to read Jacques Bouvras very carefully. I'm curious to ask, uh, are there any other such influences or inspirations or dialogues behind the book? Yeah, so, well, uh, apart from uh, Bourdieu, of course, Max Weber, as I said, was uh, very, very important uh, uh, for me. Uh, also for my previous book uh, on the responsibility of the writer uh, about uh, uh, rational action and about uh, uh, many other aspects of my, my work, of, of course charisma is, is central. Um, Kassir also, the symbolic forms, I would say, uh, and, um, and then I do engage, and this is from this book on sociology of literature, with uh, uh, theoreticians of uh, literature, including the Marxist. Uh, but I'm interested uh, in the um, uh, uh, founders of cultural studies, especially Raymond Williams. So it's less per perhaps less present. Uh, also, Lucien Goldman. It's it's perhaps less present here, but I do discuss that. 
uh, at least theoretically. It, it's not, it has not uh, oriented my, um, uh, my arguments, but uh, I do discuss this tradition in the book. Again, that's something, that depth of engagement is felt in every chapter. And looking over your past work leading up to this book, you also start to introduce a few new concepts and new ideas, or new directions at least. And I think the one that really piqued my interest the most was your idea of an operateur axiologique. And I'm curious, can you speak a little bit more about this particular concept or analytical tool? So I have proposed the concept of axiological operator for notions such as disinterestedness, on which I'm working now, uh, uh, civilization, freedom, transparency, that is uh, studied by Stephanos uh, Gerulanus, I, I think would, would fit in that. Uh, these notions give uh, systems of culture uh, uh, oppositions, um, at the same time their meaning, and their position in a hierarchy of values. So this operates through spatial uh, designators, in this case high and low, uh, and they have moral connotations like uh, worthy, ding, uh, and unworthy, or undignified, indigne. Uh, and the social efficacy of uh, such operators comes from their ability to symbolically unify systems of classification, of heterogeneous types, uh, of hi hierarchies uh, in the orders of values and institutions. Um, and I, I, I started developing that when I was, with no concept of disinterested, when I was working on the, uh, the uh, big polemic uh, around um, uh, the education reform of 1904 in France, uh, which suppressed Latin uh, as, uh, not suppressed Latin, but opened new paths uh, where you could get uh, a degree uh, without a baccalaureate at the end of high school without Latin. And there was a huge debate uh, about the science as being interested versus disinterestedness. So I built, it's a, it's a kind of structuralist method, I, I built a system of opposition and then I could see that there were some notions like here disinterestedness and you can do the same with civilization freedom which was giving uh, the uh, unifying the system uh, and allowing to subsume uh, uh, oppositions that were from that, that were not, not, not from the same um, domain uh, and it's a logics of uh, uh, fuzziness, as Bourdieu says, in logics of practice. It's not the logics of logics, uh, but it works. It works in uh, ideological system because it's not ideological in the sense of a, a, a clear uh, political system, but because it's a kind of uh, uh, more a worldview and then uh, the, the, the rhetorics of. Uh, Pamphletius, for instance, Lampunist, is very much built on this uh, blurring of uh, uh, systems of oppositions from different uh, uh, areas, social areas. And such general principles like uh, freedom, uh, civilization, disinterestedness, are instrumental in the construction of causes. Let those causes uh, 
otherwise be discredited as defending particular interests. So if you defend, for instance, um, I don't know, the, today, uh, academic freedom, you cannot defend academic freedom saying it's, it's a privilege of our cooperation, because then it's corporatism. You have to defend uh, academic freedom on the basis of more general value, more universal values. Uh, and then you have to say that academic freedom would help uh, promote uh, um, uh, the good in the world, uh, would help uh, empower citizens uh, because it will uh, allow uh, knowledge to circulate. So you need uh, these uh, broader uh, arguments. And consequently, axiological operators play a major role in symbolic struggles, especially in periods of social transformation, but they are also a constant object of struggle for their definition and appropriation. Thank you. And uh, I think this draws together a lot of the questions in the book, which I'd like to return to just for a moment as well, maybe a bit of a step backwards and forward as well, looking to the present day. And that's a question of how European culture is reconfigured by figures as diverse as Aragon and Drew de la Rochelle. Even as a characteristic renationalization of literature was attempted, at least partly achieved, by writers on the left and the right, I'm curious to ask, did they share any common basis or almost a conceptual lowest, lowest common denominator or bit of a, uh, almost bits and pieces of concepts that they could put together and reconstruct for this idea of European culture? whatever that might mean. In the specific case of Aragon and Rio La Rochelle, I would, share, I would say that what they shared was the experience of the First World War. And uh, uh, the uh, result of the abuses of nationalism. Uh, so it's interesting to, to see how nationalism and Europeanism was used in this period by Opposite, opposite camps. Uh, nationalism was until the Third Republic and until the, the end of the 19th century, one can say, uh, a rep republican value because uh, the internationalism was, was the emigre of the French Revolution and the republicans and the uh, uh, revolutionaries were those who defended the national interest, promoted national interest, um, and it was the aristocracy who was international, uh, transnational. Um, and the Third Republic established itself with the building of a, a, a republican uh, moral, secular morality, uh, uh, morality that was separated from the church. At the same time, arose during a couple of years after the establishment of the First Republic, a right-wing uh, movement of ultranationalism that I mentioned before, which is Action Française, uh, which drove. They were totally opposed, of course, to Germany uh, because of the defeat, uh, but they were uh, uh, borrowing the German concept of the nation which was a concept based not on uh, adhesion, uh, the choice of citizens to be French, it was linked to the fact that Alsace-Lorraine uh, uh, 
was not of French culture, but uh, was reconquered by the, the, the French wanted to reconquer Alsace-Lorraine, uh, while the German claimed that it belonged culturally to Germany. Uh, so the far right uh, borrowed this notion of uh, the cultural definition of nationalism, uh, cultural ethnicization of nationalism, and then they uh, condemned the les quatre États confédérés, the, the, the four, uh, uh, so the um, uh, Jews, the Francmasons, uh, uh, Freemasons, uh, the Metek, uh, all the, the, the foreigners and uh, uh, the Protestants also were, were, were condemned. And Protestants were very central in the Republican uh, uh, government of the Third Republic. Um, so, and the generation, this generation was very nationalistic because of the defeat of France uh, uh, at, uh, the, the, uh, in 1870 at the, the, the German uh, forces. Uh, and this nationalism culminated in 1914. But you can see different with those who were young during the war, uh, like Drieu and Aragon, and who were kind of socialized through the war and had a, this horrible experience uh, of massacres. Uh, and they were somehow less attached. They were more internationalist, and all the pacifist movement in the interwar period was very internationalist. The interesting thing is that the right wing was it was nationalist and the left uh, internationalist. But in the 30s, when the with the rise of the fascist regimes, the right wing became suddenly started to defend a kind of um, of uh, pacifism, neo pacifism it is called, uh, because they didn't want the war, and it was the left. Uh, the allied left of the Popular Front, uh, allying uh, socialist, radical socialist, and communist, who defended uh, the war uh, against. They, they didn't always defend the war because they didn't go to to. Uh, they they decided not to uh, defend uh, uh, the republicans in in Spain uh, against Franco, but they were more on this side in favor of combating. Uh, uh, of, of war uh, then, um, then, and also in, the, in 1940, of course, to, to continue the war. Uh, while those neo-pacifists of the right, they were in favor of uh, uh, collaboration with the German forces that they had combated for, for decades. Uh, so there is a kind of um, crossing. But the new generation, they had a different, I mean, th there was a, Collaborationists had a conception of Europe, but it was a fascist Europe under Nazi uh, domination, uh, and they subscribed to that. So it's all the. It was not Moras would not subscribe to that, but all the the young generation that were initially uh, close to Moras, but they left in 1934. They they became more pro uh, fascist, pro Nazis. Um, they, they they departed from Moras because. They, he, stayed, he continued to be too nationalistic for them, uh, and he was elected at the Académie Française in 1938, but, uh, um, and became the councillor in Pétain, and never uh, pronounced a word uh, on uh, uh, foreign affairs, uh, because he said that it was uh, the leader, uh, the state leader, he had been attacking 
the government for decades before, but now he said it was the political uh, leader who had to decide what was better for France, so never pronounced anything. So he was the, cons the council, uh, councillor of Marshal Pétain in a government who accepted to cooperate with the, 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 the German occupying forces that he had combated all his life, uh, the, the German. Uh, and uh, the, the young generation of fascist writers were even more uh, pro-European. But of course there was, and, and the resistance became, there was, they were the internationalists before the war, and they became nationalists defending national autonomy, but a different uh, national conception, which was linked to the French Revolution, which was about freedom, which was, which was about universal values, and uh, against ra racism, uh, racism uh, and um, uh, so these were, were the, the values they promoted, and of course they would be later in favor of a, a, a democratic uh, Europe. Thank you. And this uh, leads to my, at least, inexorable question. And that regards the last chapter of the book, where you engage with the politics of contemporary French literature. And I think what I admire is that you can show almost, for lack of a better term on my part, a sociological lineage or a conceptual lineage. And so I'd like to ask about this uh, in this regard, about your, how you imagine your role as a sociologist today, both analyzing and occasionally inter in intervening in these liter literary debates today in France. Yes, uh, the paradox is that when I, um, when I wrote my dissertation, I really thought I was writing on the past. I thought it was finished. I, think, I thought it was over and it would never come again. And uh, these past years, it was a kind of shock to discover that uh, there was a project of, uh, it has appeared since then, uh, uh, publishing the complete works of Charles Maurras and republishing uh, Céline's uh, um, uh, Lampoons, who were not forbidden. It was Céline who didn't want them to be published, but now, uh, uh, since his uh, um, widow needs money, apparently, uh, so now they're interested in uh, uh, republishing. She, she was opposed at the beginning, but now she... she uh, tends to agree, uh, and um, and of course the repu uh, republication of Les Décombres by Rebatte with annotation, but still it appeared in a series by uh, uh, in Robert Laffont, uh, which is a very large uh, uh, circulation series. So I've been writing a book against censorship. But, and I'm not in favor of censorship, but I think publishers have a responsibility and they, they make choices. There are so many things that are not republished. Julien Banda's work, for instance, which is uh, much more interesting probably than uh, uh, Charles Maurras's work. Uh, I know that Pascal Angel proposed it to at least two publishers in France and they, they, they declined, probably because it won't sell as well as uh, this far-right. And what does it mean that these far-right writings sell so well today? Uh, so the argument I had, I have had arguments with uh, um, uh, critics and uh, uh, so they, they would say uh, we have to publish them uh, because we have to understand what antisemitism was. People have to understand. Uh, 
I said, but you, you, I mean, so much has been written about anti-Semitism. Uh, so do you think it's by, uh, and do you really think that people will buy for looking at the footnotes? Uh, and so what, what, what does it mean? To, and also all these texts are available online. So, uh, so just publishing them is dignifying them, is giving them a, a kind of a symbolic status, making them part of the cultural patrimony. And uh, more generally, I'm often um, solicited to, uh, to, on these questions of uh, literature and, uh, and, and politics, on contemporary literature, and I, I do uh, intervene. Uh, I don't think that um, uh, uh, scholarship, uh, uh, as academics, uh, we are uh, neutral. I think that uh, knowledge is not uh, neutral. You, we, we need to have a kind of uh, axiological uh, uh, neutrality when we when we we work, but uh, uh, there I don't believe in total epistemological neutrality. Um, so yes, I think we have to endorse this responsibility and uh, use also the knowledge to to clarify things. Uh, that is what I try to do. I never um, give my opinions. I don't think that's my contribution. Uh, I try to to show how uh, something to analyze things and to show how they relate to past things, for instance. Well, as one of your readers, I can say you succeed brilliantly in this book. Thank you. And I'm also intrigued with the mention of a work on censorship, which brings me to a set of concluding questions, which is to ask about your current research, if I may. Yes, sure. I'm now working on two books, two, two book projects. Um, so one is uh, the making of uh, word authorship. Uh, it's about the role of intermediaries uh, such as publishers, literary agents, prizes, literary festivals, international literary festivals in the making of international writers, writers that get global. How, how, what's the difference between the national making of a writer and the international. So uh, who are the intermediaries that contribute to that? Uh, I gave a, a talk at uh, Institute of Word. Uh, it was I gave it as a McKenzie lecture at, in Oxford a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, I reworked that for uh, uh, a talk at Institute of uh, World Literature, uh, uh, some school um, at Harvard, uh, three or four years ago. And um, the second uh, book project is a historical sociology of the concept of uh, disinterestedness. It is a very old project of which I talked with Bourdieu before he died and he liked it very much. Uh, and I've been working on it only here and there because I had these other projects. Um, not only the one on the, the book on the responsibility of the writer, but also all the projects about translation, um, a lot of collective projects. Uh, but uh, last year I spent, I spent one, year, one year at Wissenschaftskolleg uh, in Berlin and I was able to work more in depth on this project. And in the same vein, in terms of new scholarship, May I ask, would you recommend any younger scholars who you would recommend more widely to both sociologists and also historians, literary scholars? So uh, I read a lot of dissertations, <laughs> as I mean a lot of uh, uh, committees and uh, ju juries and um, also um, I supervise a lot of uh, PhD candidates. 
some of them I publish in my series. I have a series at Seneris uh, Edition entitled Culture and Society, it's a homage to Raymond Williams. Uh, and I would, I would just mention the last title in this series. It's Mathieu Oshkorn's uh, book uh, on the reception of John Rawls in France. Uh, I think it's a very remarkable social history of political ideas. Uh, and I mention it because it will be translated into English uh, in the Cambridge uh, Ideas in Context series. So I don't know when, but probably would take two years. It's a very long and uh, deep book, but I think it's uh, a very remarkable uh, contribution to intellectual uh, history. And since we've been speaking today about literature, perhaps a final fun question, and that would be, what are you reading for pleasure if you have time between dissertations and your own research? Well, my luck is that uh, um, working on literature, <laughs> I can also read for pleasure and for work at the same time. Um, I think I can mention um, Four, four novels I read in the two, three last years that were really outstanding uh, and that uh, three of them are uh, available, will be available in English probably fourth also. Uh, so first I would like to mention Camille Laurent's book, uh, uh, Who You Think I Am, so it's already translated and I, I've written a literary critic of this book in En Attendant Nadeau. It's an amazing uh, uh, novel uh, about uh, um, uh, symbolic violence uh, towards uh, women, how symbolic, it really works well with Bourdieu's uh, notion of symbolic violence because it's how symbolic violence is interiorized by a woman who um, uh, disguises herself uh, on internet, uh, she's 48 and she disguises herself uh, as a 27 uh, year old uh, woman and she has a love affair on, online with a, uh, a young guy, a younger guy, but they never meet because she cannot show. Uh, uh, and, um, but the, the, the narrative construction, uh, the formal construction of the novel is uh, really uh, very, very innovative, very interesting and and also uh, all the uh, dispositions, the, the, the way um, identity is built by institutions because it's taught in a psychiatric uh, institution and so it's, it's uh, and the writing of her style is, is amazing. So the second I would like, I also wrote a, a review of, of it uh, in Don Ado, Yvonne Adian-Beauvoir. Uh, her, uh, she's a Kenyan writer and her last novel uh, is entitled The Dragonfly Sea, it's published with Knopf and uh, just appeared in March uh, and I met her last year at Wissenschaftskolleg uh, as well as the other author that I want to mention, Georgi Dragoman. Uh, so this is the story of uh, a young uh, girl uh, from uh, Kenya, from uh, an island, uh, who is chosen by um, a Chinese official as the descendant, uh, the descendant of uh, Chinese uh, migrants, uh, a captain uh, uh, 300 years before, and she's invited to China to learn uh, uh, Chinese medicine. And so it's all the, the trip on the boat and the uh, socialization to a new culture and also the kind of, uh, um, it's a kind of Bildungsroman uh, in a very um, uh, 
different uh, settings. Uh, there is also a, a, an episode in Turkey, and she she comes back uh, to. I don't want to tell the story, but uh, mm -hmm. and it's a uh, beautifully beautifully written and um, very very amazing novel. Uh, and I wanted to mention uh, Georgi Dragoman's uh, novel The Bonfire. It's not yet out in English, I think. His first book is already translated. It's White King. It's also amazing. Uh, the Bonfire. So The White King is about um, uh, young, uh, uh, young adults, uh, uh, teenagers um, uh, in Eastern Europe, the end of communism, probably Romania because he, he is a, a Hungarian author but he, he was raised as a Hungarian minority in Romania uh, so all the uh, violence of how the, the politics is uh, the violence of the politics is um, manifests itself through the violence of the kids uh, among themselves so it's, it's really fascinating and the bonfire is a, a 13 year, years old a teenager a, a girl who um, who is an orphan and she discovers she has a grandma and uh, the grandma comes and takes her and through the grandma she kinds of it's only the, the standpoint of the girl so you know nothing and she learns a bit of the past of the communist past and but it's everything is very very uh, fuzzy, uh, fuzzy imperceptible and uh, and the last um, the, the the writing is also very very beautiful very concise very uh, each chapter is a kind of uh, individual uh, it's he has a technique of publishing uh, chapters as short stories separately so it's very original and the last one I want to mention uh, that I read uh, this summer, uh, Louis Philippe d'Alembert. It's uh, uh, called Mur Méditerranée, Wall Méditerranée, and it's about uh, three migrant woman, women, uh, one from uh, uh, Nigeria, one from Eritrea, and one from Syria, and they all meet on the boat. And it's about uh, the, the, their uh, trajectories, what led them to this boat, uh, also the uh, so all the violence they have an, uh, experience on their way, especially in Libya, the slavery and the, uh, but also the hierarchies among uh, the migrant groups uh, on the boat uh, between the sub-Saharian and the uh, uh, Arab population who is uh, richer is uh, on on the uh, on the boat and the the others are uh, down and uh, uh, the violence on the on the boat and also the um, I, I won't tell the story he just won uh, last week the or three days ago I think the uh, Prix de la Langue Française the prize of uh, French language. So, so wonderful. Uh, I'll draw the, uh, the interview to a close now, but I, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the Journal of the History of Ideas website, as well as all of our readers and colleagues and fellow, uh, fellow scholars. So thank you again once more to Professor Sapiro, and hope to greet all of the, our listeners to the podcast for the next time. Thank you. Thank you so much, John.